0: Giorgio Armani once said, To create something exceptional, your mindset must be relentlessly focused on the smallest detail. This is Save vs. Rant. Save vs. Rant, the Everyman Gaming Podcast. I'm John. And I'm Jeremy. And today we are talking about subsystems, minigames, and mechanics. In the opposite order, actually. Mechanics, minigames, and subsystems. But I digress. So... This feels just kind of like a weird hodgepodge of things. Why why are we talking about the small bits of RPGs? Because the small bits are what make the big bits work. And on top of that, the
1: small bits are the most portable. That is, when we discuss subsystems, minigames, and mechanics, we're discussing the things that you can actually move between systems. They're a great way of differentiating different activities within the same game. So let's talk about what
0: these terms actually mean. A minigame. A minigame is a game unto itself within the game. Let's see. A mechanic is just a small part of the game, something that would flavor the game. And a subsystem is something that plays on an existing aspect
1: of the system adding some other aspect to that aspect. You're creating an amalgam of different ideas within
0: it. One of the big concepts we want to try and get across here is how these things create a bit of variety in an otherwise standard role-playing experience. I can play d d John can play D&D, and we can play basically the same d d game. But if we add in a mechanic, a subsystem, basically any little thing, it changes the game and makes it that much more interesting, that much more different.
1: I've heard people say that you don't need to overcomplicate games and you don't need to change them around and that sometimes these sort of things get in the way. But what I want to point out is that everybody does this with games. Every game, if played enough, needs some variety to make it different. As a great example of this, even chess masters play variants on chess. Bobby Fisher, for example, is extremely fond of this variant where he would take the was? Is Bobby Fisher still alive? I think so. Okay, Bobby Fischer is very fond of this variant of chess where you take the entire back row of pieces and you rearrange it so that, you know, maybe the uh, rooks are kind of toward the middle and the bishops are both on white and things like that. And this changes the entire experience of the game. The game of chess is still fundamentally about trying to push people into an unresolvable position where you've already solved the outcome. Bobby Fischer's dead? 2008. 2008? It's been a minute. Jeez, I guess I guess when you don't make the news that often, you know, it, it's easy to just drop off the radar, but good to know. Anyway, the point is that even games like chess that we think of as being these, these inviolatable things are still games that people play around with, that they change around and move. And variety is the spice of life after all.
0: Let's go into this. Uh, As John said, we're going to be starting with mechanics. So let's kind of talk about what mechanics are in terms of role-playing games. Every game has a mechanic. At its core, every game is
1: going to have some way of resolving conflict. And there's always some core mechanic. In the D20 system, it is the titular D20. You roll a D20 to see what the result is. In games like Fate, there's one unified way of solving almost every problem. And in games like World of Darkness, there's a unified way that has some variance, but still, at its core, you're just creating a dice pool and rolling it. And I feel like there's kind of a progression when games add mechanics to them, where certain mechanics start emerging more or less in the same order. And a great example of that is that most games have a combat mechanic that's separate from their core mechanic. I guess the reason for that is that role-playing games were an extension of war games, so the very first thing that we're talking about is how to kill all the other bad guys.
0: The biggest example that we have of an interesting mechanic that just kind of keeps popping up, we've decided on the name of the Paizo Points mechanic. And it, it it was really kind of subtle at first. John and I were discussing, oh, I liked this little mechanic in here. Uh, I liked the Trust mechanic mechanic in Carrion Crown. I liked the
1: liberation points mechanic in Kingmaker, even though I didn't exactly end up playing it like that. It's a good way of tracking how the party is progressing and liberating this
0: particular city. In Wrath of the Righteous, there were the siege points when you were besieging Castle Dresden, and then we realized, wait, all of these have the same system. What it is is you have a list of things that you need to do to gain a certain sometimes arbitrary number of points and you're accumulating these points until you reach a certain threshold and have accomplished your goal.
1: Now the great thing about this is that it's a non-linear way for the story to progress. You can tackle these events often in any order you know are you going to breach the wall first are you going to invade through the well what whatever method you're using you choose the ones that you find most suitable to you and you prioritize those and a lot of the adventure paths have this system in it where there are all these lists of things you can do plus you know some reference to how the dm can arbitrate additional events that might not fall on this list but might generate these points and then when you hit certain point values either certain events happen. Happen, certain options are unlocked for the characters, or certain bonuses and benefits are given. And this is a super portable system. You can use this in almost any game. It's really easy to just make a list of events, give them a value, and then say what happens when you reach certain points. And it allows for the non-linear tackling of any problem.
0: Let's say you have a group of NPCs that your group needs to try and infiltrate. So we'll start calling this uh, subversion point points you have to talk with the janitor to gain his trust. You have to start doing favors for them. Maybe even doing small little jobs for this group before you can be accepted in. Start tracking their movements and getting an idea of where they show
1: up so you can conveniently bump into them at locations that they're at. You can otherwise insert yourself into social situations they find themselves in and endear yourself to them in those ways. All of these things would generate these points and eventually you'd have enough points that you can actually infiltrate the group. They invite you you to their cult outing or to the giant owl
0: statue they have out in the woods somewhere in California. You know, things like that giant owl stuff. You know what? Never mind. I don't want to know. I do not want to know. You know, we're talking about the Paizo Point mechanic that we kind of stumbled on when we were looking through for mechanics and we realized that it has a lot of similarities to skill challenges from d d 4th edition. But skill challenges from 4th edition always left a bad taste in my mouth. Why, why is it that they could be so similar to the Paizo Points mechanic and yet be bad?
1: Well, one of the problems, I think, was that skill challenges were often a replacement replacement for actually role playing out events it was just announce what you're trying to do and roll the appropriate die check and see what happens you know so there would be a lot of situations where you might want to interact with a character and your whole point is to convince say a duke to aid you and what you do is you just say well i'm going to approach this situation diplomatically you roll your diplomacy check well i'm going to try to intimidate you roll your intimidation check and for the most part i think that people tend to run social situations and RPGs kind of the same way you actually talk through the social situation role play it out and then at the crucial moment where you need to decide whether or not the character is amicable to the specific method of persuasion you make a quick dice roll and you modify it by any factors that might have worked in the character's favor. Were they giving gifts? Were they trying to endear themselves? Or against them? Were they being offensive? Were they playing against that character's interests? And then check the outcome. So we kind of have a well-established system for that that we all really like, and the skill system kind of subverted that. It also was a situation where a lot of times it was a hammer and nail situation where characters would say, well, I have high intimidation. Can I move the boulder with that? you gonna do? Give the boulder a gun show like, yeah, check out my muscles. And it just gets so intimidating, it rolls out of your way. You know what? What are you gonna do?
0: Oh, I think that the skill challenge system from 4th edition was best suited for anything that happened quickly and dynamically. Your chases, your diffusing of bombs, not necessarily trying to court someone or get the favor of a duke. That really felt wrong. Yeah, I seem to recall it working really well in a chase scene. I I have a vague recollection of
1: it. It's been a long time since I played 4th Edition, but there was like a chase scene involving like a rampaging minotaur or something, and it it just, it worked really well because it forced them to do something other than just roll athletics checks over and over, and it forced them to consider the environment and what was going on, so that was was a good dynamic use of it, but as a general rule, I felt that in social situations
0: it just kind of fell short. Now, we've talked about mechanics in the past on this podcast so we're gonna move on from this that way we don't hammer down the uh, same things that we've talked about before next we have mini games now mini games are a full separate game completely different than the game you're playing and that can be transported into and out of the game you are playing now, the quintessential
1: minigames are where the player characters are playing a game within a game. They stop for a poker game, or they're betting on horses, or racing dinosaurs, something like that. All of these options are things... Yeah, racing dinosaurs, because uh, Tomb of Annihilation. Oh, yeah. That's the coolest thing ever. I was so pumped when I saw that that was in there. I'm sorry, I digress. Uh, the point is that that's the quintessential kind of minigame, is where the player characters are just playing a game within the game and in many cases it's as simple as coming up with the game, porting it into your game, and deciding how your game influences it. Like, if you're playing poker, for example, you might want your players to be able to cheat at the game. Obviously, you don't want people actually cheating at the poker game, but a player character might be able to roll a die, and upon
0: a sufficient success, draw two extra cards for their hand, or something like that. Minigames are most prevalent in video games. In RPGs, it's almost standard now that there's going to be some sort of minigame to occupy your time if you don't want to continue on with the main quest of the game. Yeah, I wonder what the first
1: one was. I guess I should look into that sometime. Maybe I'll have time to do that before I post the blog, but I remember Final Fantasy VII had like, what all, I remember the tower defense sort of real-time strategy minigame.
0: Oh, it had a real-time strategy tower defense game. It had a submarine combat game. It had Chocobo racing. Chocobo racing, yes. <laughs> it had the motorcycle racing out of Midgard. But, heck, even Final Fantasy 1 had that weird slider puzzle that you could unlock just if you knew the right way to find it.
1: Oh, yeah, right! I remember that now. And Final Fantasy 8, 9, and 10-2 all had card games within them of some sort that had trading cards that you had
0: to collect throughout the game in order to play them. Even The Witcher 3 had Gwent, which was a pretty decent little card game, which they actually made a full separate game of. And and X had blitzball which
1: some people hated but some people liked. Uh our friend Julia liked that so much that she, I'm sure she would play a game that was nothing but blitzball. But the point is in general what these games did is they gave you kind of a pastime to play within the game, but then every single one of them, I think with the exception of that Final Fantasy one slider puzzle, but every single one of them would give you some in-game benefit when you mastered them. And that's kind of the point of these things are crafting systems in games are kind of their own mini game because it's just combining things. I'd argue that they're pretty simple and moderately boring mini games, but they're mini games nonetheless.
0: I feel like we kind of have to talk about the elephant in the room when we talk about mini games. Kingdom building Kingdom Building is a mini game, and actually,
1: I feel that the Pathfinder Kingdom Building game is probably one of the strongest minigames that's ever been released for an RPG. And you don't have to take my word for it. Go ahead, try to find the second adventure in the Kingmaker Adventure Path just as a standalone book. It's almost impossible. You can find every other module from that six-module series, but number two is... Conspicuously absent, and why? Because that was where the kingdom building rules were, and people were so enthusiastic about it. It was so well done that people were buying that module without the rest of the adventure path, so that they could have their own kingdom building adventures. Understandable, because until Ultimate Campaign was released, we didn't have those rules anywhere else, and they were a pretty phenomenal system. In fact, it's kind of almost hard to remember what you get out of the kingdom building rules. Like, you know what the point of them was, right?
0: Uh, you. Got Got magic items that you could equip the player characters with. It also gave you some random encounters in one of the modules, and that's all I can remember it giving you. Uh, yeah, and also it
1: determined what resources were available in the various cities throughout your kingdom. And the magic items, by the way, they'd just give them to you. It made them available to you. Depending on how large a given city was, there would be certain magic items available there. And then on top of that, there would be magic items of up to this value can be obtained here reliably. And that was kind of the point to it. And there really wasn't much else to it. It was just hey, isn't it cool to have a kingdom? You could withdraw money from it, but that was basically destroying your kingdom slowly. And you could add money to it, but that was basically just pumping your own resources into the minigame. Ultimately, that was what you got out of it, was access to magic items, which frankly isn't that big a deal. The Adventure Path didn't really stack magic items against you to make up for that. It just kind of added that on. And it was so
0: cool. Now, we could go on about the kingdom building rules, and probably at some point, we'll do an in-depth analysis of the kingdom building rules
1: not counting our economy episode of course which kind of had an analysis of them
0: but let's let's move on you know
1: there's a game called aces and eights yeah it's actually uh it's a pretty neat idea in
0: general i'm not sure how i feel about playing it and why is that well aces and eights aside from being my third favorite western RPG is mostly just a game of minigames. There's not really a cohesive system that ties it all together. Yeah, it's just the character sheet is like the unifying factor
1: between these minigames. Apart from that, they're completely separate. There's a shooting minigame that actually uses a little rotary dial like target reticle and you put it over silhouettes and you draw cards and roll dice to determine how accurate your shot was. The Barum Brawl mini game is like a little poker game with chips bluffing and betting. There's a minigame for jury trials, and notably there's a really crummy mini game for cattle drives that has a lot going against it.
0: In general, the Aces and 8's game is fun in its parts, but I don't know if I would actually want to play it through as a campaign, and yeah, the cattle driving is you do it once and then never speak of it again. Well, the big problem with it is that there was only really
1: one map, so there is a right answer to what the best route for cattle driving is. It's not up in the air. You can actually chart out mathematically what the best route is, and there's no reason to deviate from it. Apart from that, it's mostly just tracking heads of cattle, making sure that they're uh, hydrated and fed, and making dice rolls, and it's really not that exciting. But uh, I guess I can see where it's a shell of a system that could be used for something, but in general, it really falls short and it's probably the worst way
0: to do a hex crawl that I've ever seen. Oh, speaking of hex crawls! Up next, we're talking about subsystems. This is probably the most robust section that we have here, mostly because every game has its systems, and they just modify, tweak, and put out new rules for that and add subsystems in. John was mentioning hex crawls. Overland Travel is a part of almost every fantasy role-playing game. Oh, it's been around since first edition D&D. The
1: original Keep on the Borderlands is about 90% hex crawl and then everything beyond that is the little dungeons that you have to get to.
0: And hex crawling is really fun. It's more than just rolling for random encounters. We go from here to here, random encounter, random encounter, random encounter. No, it's there's also hidden stuff in each hex. You're also handing the player characters a map and go here, map out what you find. Oh, there's a river here. How do you get across the river? And it adds the survival element to a game of Dungeons & Dragons or any fantasy game that otherwise might not be there. And one of the great things about it is it's really just an extrapolation of existing rules. At no
1: point are you really introducing anything that doesn't already exist in the rules. The speeds are based on how quickly your characters would normally move, modified by the difficulty of crossing the train. Searching for things is all built on the search systems already built into the game. Random encounters basically happen with the frequency that random encounters are expected to happen with. It's just a really cool extrapolation of an, of existing things within the system, the overland travel.
0: If you want to find a good compilation of subsystems in Dungeons & Dragons, in most of the editions, they've released a book called Unearthed Arcana fabulous book. Every single time they've released it, it is new rules, new systems, additional spells, additional abilities, all sorts of new things that you can add into your game that makes the game more of what it is. In the original Unearthed Arcana, which I have a copy of right here, they have rules for unarmed combat and dueling. Second edition, I believe, also had uh, a more advanced version of dueling and unarmed combat where you were attacking in one area and defending in one area, attempting to try and block your opponent. Yeah, skills and power, and uh, depending on
1: how accurate you were predicting what your opponent was going to do in the duel, you would have bonuses or penalties to what you were trying to do within the duel. Again, it built off the existing combat system. Uh, second edition also had a system for unarmed combat that it was really kind of goofy and involved rolling dice to see what kind of punch you laid on your opponent. It was kind of sort of a boxing system. And it was weird because it also had like a tiny percentage chance that you would just straight up knock your opponents out. So in some ways it was stronger than armed combat because it could just get a one-hit knockout. I guess one of the crazy things was that a lot of the subsystems in second edition were not play tested at all. And at some point I'd really like to rant about what happened happened to second edition D&D because of the takeover of TSR's corporate structure and the people who really didn't want anyone to spend time playing games just make the games without playing them was kind of the philosophy and that's a rant for another day definitely something I do want to touch on though because it was such a weird
0: time in D&D's history the third edition unearthed arcana book has a ton of interesting rules now a lot of people that picked this up latched on the Gestalt rules and we're not going to talk about them. They were mostly broken and... I want to rant about the Gestalt rules
1: really quick. They were really
0: cool. They were a
1: great idea. The whole point behind them was to pad out parties that were of too few characters. If you only had two characters in your party, you're not going to have a balanced party. What Gestalt did is it let you take all the features from two different classes and just lump them all into one character every single level. So you got all the Fighter Class traits and all the Wizard Class traits at first level if you were a Gestalt fighter wizard. It's a great system if you really need to pad out a party that's way too low. However, what it suggested in the book was a one level level adjustment which is nowhere near the level of power that you need to add to a character at higher levels who has these Gestalt features. They're really cool and you can run a Gestalt campaign. People have done it. I know people who have run Gestalt campaigns and they're a really cool idea, but do not ever pretend that it's even a little bit balanced because it It is a nightmare if you're trying to balance it in a meaningful way, especially if you get ridiculous and start doing things like, oh, Gestalt multi-classing or Gestalt Prestige Classing.
0: Speaking of classes, Variant Classes were introduced in both the versions of Unearthed Arcana that I have sitting next to me, and those are always fun little subsystems. Hey, I like the Ranger, but is there any way I could be a Ranger in the city? Hey, I really enjoy being a paladin. Is there any way I could be a mounted paladin? A cavalier? The 3rd edition Unearthed Arcana also introduced traits and flaws... Now, let's not kid ourselves. Third edition, one of the big points of third edition was this massive customization of characters. Having your builds that you had for five, six levels, sometimes all the way up to level 20, was a huge chunk of the game. They weren't necessarily characters. They were amalgamations of levels and abilities. And traits and flaws let you actually flesh out a character while giving them different powers and whatnot.
1: Yeah, the whole ivory tower gaming concept which was uh, just uh, to summarize it really quick was that there were options that were better or worse but the game designers weren't really going to tell you about that they were just going to let you figure it out and that mastery of the system was in fact part of the game that created this ecosystem of skills, abilities, powers, and traits that let you do massive levels of customization. And frankly, almost anything that added to that was by definition good in 3rd edition, as long as it wasn't so powerful or so weak that it was either a... Always take this or never take this choice. Like power attack for fighter types, for example. Every fighter type at power attack, period, end of discussion. That's not fun. It might as well be a class trade at that point. But... For the most part, adding things like traits, which were like good for about half a feat's worth of power, and flaws, which would give you something bad in return for something good, were just these amazing things that added so much versatility and so many options to characters.
0: Another option I really enjoyed were the power components. Different, hard to find material components for spells or rituals or magic items that gave you a big boost to it. Sometimes you could get components from a a monster and use it to replace a particularly expensive material component for a spell. Or if you used it as a component for a spell, it would power up the spell
1: yeah like add a meta magic feat to it or give it some other uh, bonus like leveling it up a few levels or something like that and I guess one of the things that the designers admitted to when they were working on d d 3rd edition is that they didn't want to go out of their way like dragon scale was about as far as they wanted to go with the whole you can harvest parts for monsters in order to use them as weapons or equipment and I guess the idea behind it was they didn't like the idea of adventurers going out and becoming like monster butchers, which is
0: kind of weird to me, right? Yeah, I mean, you're expecting the player characters to go out and harvest food from the land. I mean, you're hunting deer, you're hunting rabbits. Why can't I also shoot down that weird flying lizard thing that is shooting sun rays at us? Or why can't I skin this shark with quadrupedal legs that comes up through the ground? Or why can't I use a beholder's anti-magic eye for something? Right. Historically, within the context
1: of fiction, and I don't know, possibly within the context of real-life practices, shamanistic and other uh, pagan rituals of magic have always drawn on this idea that there are things you can take from nature that have inherent qualities that can be used for magic look at the like even in Shakespeare's uh, Macbeth you have the witches talking about what they're brewing in their pot to create a spell you know eye of newt and toe of frog wing of bat and tongue of dog and such and the whole point is that all of these things have some quality to them that makes them magical and I think that that tradition. Tradition of magic should really carry over into fantasy RPGs and should be an ongoing thing of that think about Harry Dresden in uh, the Dresden Files where he's making potions and he's got to use all of these different parts to create this sensory experience that gives it the power of the potion he expects it to have. We love monster hunting story. We have traditions of dragon slayers and things like that and the idea that we're just killing these monsters and leaving their bodies to rot actually is more offensive to me than the idea that we're going to use every part of the buffalo. In this case, a big metallic buffalo that has a breath that can turn you to stone. You know, Gorgon's running about. But the point is, why are we just throwing this all away? Why isn't there some quality to it that's good? Hackmaster, even though it's kind of a parody game, specifically in their uh, creature compendium, every monster, or almost every monster, has some list of things you can harvest from the monster. I don't remember a lot of good examples, but there was one that was just, like, blink dogs or whatever. You could use their hip bone to make a club that would automatically be masterwork and have a think it was a discount to enchant it something like that the point is uh, with specific types of enchantment the point is that that's a really flavorful way of making it work and it's a good subsystem within again the system of item creation the system of wealth acquisition it also gives a reason that monsters that might not have a cause to hoard treasure are still valuable things to hunt and valuable things to search for
0: so we've been talking about a lot of fun and good subsystems we do want to talk about one Really bad subsystem, and we haven't been able to find a good version of this. A perennially bad subsystem. Mass combat. Anytime that you have an army against another army, it just breaks down in one way or another. Either They do, either they abstract the system too much, don't give you enough control over the individual units or pieces, and just go, okay, roll a die five times and beat my die roll five times. Or they get way too nitty gritty with it and go, okay, clear off the table, we're going to do a miniatures combat game now.
1: Honestly, I would prefer the miniatures combat variation to most versions. As much as I loved Kingmaker, and as much as I specifically love the kingdom building system in Kingmaker, the mass combat system, system for Pathfinder has always been a massive disappointment to me. It's such a simple abstract system. I get that the point of it is to make these conflicts quick, but what I ended up doing instead of using the mass combat system is there is I used, it was inspired by a good friend of mine, Jason, who came up with this uh, fourth edition system for mass combat. It was literally just the rules for 4th edition combat, but the characters became representative of the units and it was fought on a battlefield with a few specific abilities that were meant to give the flavor of mass combat. So what I did is, in a conflict, I would determine what the armies were, I would then kind of determine what the representative squad from each army would be, the player characters plus whatever assistance they get from the army that they brought to the fight, and then I would. find representative monsters or enemies from the opposing army and I would run a skirmish and determine the outcome of the battle from that based on how badly each side won or lost that skirmish and I really felt that that was a better system than what was actually in there which is just here's army a here's army b chances are army a is stronger so chances are it's gonna win but roll some dice just to find out and that was the whole thing
0: so that's subsystems, mini games, and mechanics. Not too bad. We, we went through a decent listing of them. Our big reason that we want to talk about this once again is to differentiate your games. Even if you are an incredibly creative dungeon master, adding in these little touches, these little flavors, these little flares will give your player characters something new to discover. And as we've discussed before, discovery is one of the flavors of fun. It's one of the ways that we have fun playing games. It's easy to go overboard
1: with these things basically remember that your rules should be easy to explain especially for a system that isn't going to be the focal point of the game and yeah the pathfinders uh, kingdom building system has a lot of rules but they're actually fairly straightforward you can fit the gist of it on one page which is kind of what you should be going for as the sweet spot is if you can explain the system on one page you can give a quick handout to your players then it's probably going to be simple enough to be considered for your game and it's going to give you a great chance to to introduce something interesting to your game. Also, consider trying not to reinvent the wheel. When you can, look for existing systems that do what you want to do, and try to incorporate those into your game. In many cases, they're going to do exactly what you want, and you're going to not only save some of your time, but get some use out of products you already have, things you've already seen, and ideas that have already been tested in the field.
0: The Paizo Points mechanic is a great example of that. They have used and reused that system to Allow for so many different things from a town gaining trust in the player characters to player characters sieging a castle to liberating a city. All of these different things are based on the same system. Just reskin it, reflavor it, and add it into your game.
1: Alright, so uh coming up next, what were we going to discuss? Read aloud text. Ah, yes, read aloud text. The uh, text in adventures, books, and games that is meant to be read verbatim to the other players or to your players in the RPG. There are some pros and cons to this and there's some ideas behind it that we really like to talk about because it's a neat concept and there's a lot to it, both
0: good and bad. So, once again, this has been Save vs. Rant. Thank you very much for listening. I am Noctis, Prince of Lucius, and
1: King of Fishing! Noctis Lucius Calum, Final Fantasy XV.
0: Save vs. Rant is a Tabletop Gamers Guild production. Your hosts are John and Jeremy, with music by Timmy Skittles. New episodes are released on the first and third Monday of each month. Save vs. Rant is recorded on dueling laptops in front of a silent and invisible studio audience. Visit us at savevsrant.com or contact us on Facebook or Twitter at Save Rant. We'd love to hear from you.